Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Second letter to Timothy. If you have your testament, you may want to turn and follow the reading. If not, let your ears and your memory fill in in place of the eye. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus for the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hand. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for for that day. I've always been interested in Paul's letters to Timothy, because they were the writings of an old man and an old warrior of the gospel to a younger man. And in those letters you get Paul at his personal death, writing as a preacher to a young man whom he had influenced early in his life, and with whom he had spent many, many hours in in, in gospel service. And as he writes to him, you see something of what Paul's concern is for a younger man who is facing the problems of the world of that day and a world remarkably like ours. I do not know how well you know First and Second Timothy, but if you will read these two little books, you will find that the world in which Timothy lived was amazingly like ours. 
Paul speaks about how in the last days certain things will take place, and as you read, you know that Paul was equipping, attempting to equip this young man to cope with circumstances like those with which you will have to cope when you leave Asbury College and when you find your place in a broader world. Because of that personal tie, I've read these letters again and again, to sense something of what Paul's pastoral concern for a younger person. And as I have read them, I have found my heart warming to them. One of the things I like is the glimpse that we get here of how Paul felt about a younger man. You know, it is possible for older men to be jealous of younger men. Because there is something about life as you get older that you go into a different stage of the art. And there is always something exuberant about being in this part of the ark as life moves and you move up professionally. But then as that day comes when in the later period of your life it begins to close, you look around and I have found in older men sometimes a tendency to be a bit jealous of younger men whose life is opening, expanding, and their opportunities are on the increase. But you don't find any of this in Paul. You find a passionate, concerned, paternal love for this young man and a joy in him and a joy in his every gift, his every talent, and his every privilege. Let me cite for you just a few of the things that Paul says to reflect his attitude toward a young believer in the fight. He says in verse 3 of the first chapter, he says, He gives thanks for him continually. And you know, that's the way we ought to be about those who will follow. We ought to be thankful for every good thing about them. And so he says, Timothy, you are a cause for great gratitude to me. He says, I pray for you and I pray for you all the time, night and day. He evidently carried Timothy in his own heart. Now, I have spent my life over these last 30-some years in a family, and so I find that I tend to think in familial terms. But, you know, when I read about how Paul prays for Timothy night and day, I have the feeling that he had a little bit of the feel for Timothy that an expectant mother does for the baby that she carries within her own body concerned at every point for its well-being and for its future, and that burden that makes life a little bit more difficult for her gives her great joy for the prospect that is there. And I find this old warrior carrying in his heart a young man. It's a burden on him, yes. There is a, there is a constraint within him for him. It might be a little bit easier in one way just to wipe Timothy out of his mind. But if he took away that burden, he also would lose a great part of his joy. Because if he carries him, he prays for him because he knows that if Timothy is a success, then he will be a success. And he has reached that relationship to him where Timothy's success is his success and he's ready to carry a burden for him. He says, I remember the tears that you wept when I was with you. I don't know about you, but I had forgotten that that was there. But you can see the old preacher looked around, and Timothy is leaving him, and there's a tear in the young man's eyes, 
And don't think that old fellow isn't flattered. I like a man that can be flattered that way. And old Paul was flattered that Timothy loved him, and so he reciprocates with joy in his heart in this young man who is in the battle for Christ. And he wants to see him, and as he writes to him saying, I'd like to see you, the only reason that he says, I'd like to see you, is just for the fun of it. And I'm glad for that sort of non-religious streak in the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm not sure that it's totally non-religious, but he is as human as you and I are. The fellowship of this younger man was something that brought great joy to his heart. And he says, Timothy, I'd like to see you just for the pure fun of it. And there is a joy in Christian companionship that crosses all the normal lines that separate people, isn't there? You won't find a generation gap here. So Paul says, I just wish I could see you just for the pure fun of it. He says, because I respect you and respect the faith that is yours, and I rejoice in the faith that is in your heart in the Lord Jesus and the commitment that you have to his gospel. Now, why is it that he wants to see him, and what is it that he's most concerned about? He says one thing. He says, I'm very concerned that you stir up the gift that is in you. That that is within you that came by the laying on of hands, I want you to fan it into a furious fire. It must not be let go in, in any sense so that it doesn't come to its full fruition, its full creativity, and its full power. So you will notice in these opening verses of this chapter, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. If I were translating that last word, I might translate it a little differently and translate it wisdom. I noticed that Larnell in singing asked the Lord to give us love, power, and grace. Now, whoever wrote that was getting fairly close to what Paul is talking about here. He puts it, power, love, and wisdom. That kind of wisdom that will enable you to live a disciplined, a restrained, and a temperate, and a powerful life. That is his concern for this young man. Now, notice what he says, how he relates it. He says, I want you to stir up the gift. For many years, as I read this passage, I thought, you know, instinctively that he was talking about his talent, the gifts that we speak about is the gift of the Spirit. But if you will look at it, you will notice that he says, I want you to stir up the gift which is in you, the gift of God, because he says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, a spirit of timidity, but he gave to us a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and the spirit of wisdom. And you know this translation translates that spirit with a little s each time, but there's not a reason in the world why it couldn't be translated with a capital S too. Because the supreme gift that God ever gives to a man is not the ability to play a horn or a flute like some of these people do, or the ability to sing like Larnell does, beautiful as that is, or the ability to master 
master of physics like D. Putney or the ability, the talent for some of these other things, for drama like another. But I think the, great, the greatest gift scripturally that God ever gives to us is when he gives himself. And when he gives himself to us in his Son and in his Spirit. You will remember in that 11th chapter of Luke, Jesus is talking about prayer. And he gives the pattern prayer, and then he gives a little word about how we are supposed to be persistent in prayer, because God wants to give to us more than we want to receive. And he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give? And I think the thrust of the passage is, even his Holy Spirit to them that ask him. And in those last days of Jesus' life, those last hours before he went away, he spoke again and again about the gift of God, the promise of the Father that was to be given, and it was that Spirit. So that I think what Paul may be saying to Timothy is, I want you to be very careful that that Spirit of Christ, that Holy Spirit that is in every believer, that he not be inhibited, that he not be restricted, that he not be grieved, that he not be quenched, but that Christ's Spirit within you, Timothy, might come to do all that he wants to do within your life. And that's a beautiful concept of what one man could pray for another. And it's a beautiful concept of what an old man should pray for young men. And an old person should pray for young people that all of the designs that God in his infinite wisdom has for you, that all those designs should be fulfilled. Now you will notice how he speaks of that here. Not a spirit of fear or of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of wisdom. Now, I think the reason that he describes it this way this time is because as you read, you sense that Paul is talking about a battle. And he is the old warrior who is speaking his word to a younger man who is in another stage of the fight. Paul is coming to the end. And he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. The crown is waiting for me now. You're not ready for that yet, Timothy. Now how are you supposed to fight? And he said, you're not supposed to fight with timidity. You're not supposed to fight with fear. You're supposed to fight with confidence because the spirit that is within you is the spirit of power and he's the spirit of love and he's the spirit of wisdom. Now, that's what God wants. Aggressive Christian service. Aggressive Christian obedience. On on our toes for Christ and out there identified with him so that we are part of the battle that Christ is to win and he will win it as we are obedient to him. Now he wants Timothy to be a witness and that's part of what our battle is. We are to speak out the word of Christ. I read through this little book this morning earlier about five times and tried to read it very carefully. And one of the things that impressed me again was how many times in this book Paul speaks about teaching. He speaks about Timothy as a teacher. He speaks about himself as a teacher. He speaks about good teachers. And he speaks about false teachers. 
and he let Timothy know that part of his business in this warfare is to speak out the word of Christ and to teach it to other people. I wish I had time to dwell on that. But I want to say we have something to tell other people and it's not about us. We have something to give other people and it isn't about us. It is truth and it is eternal truth and it is about God and about his Christ and about his kingdom and about an eternal kingdom that will will rule. And the world doesn't know about it. You know, you could listen to NBC, CBS, ABC, primetime television for a millennium and never learn the nature of reality. We have something we need to say. And I think Paul felt that. I don't have time to develop it. But I challenge you. You're in an academic institution. Your environment is supposed to be intellectual. We have something academic, we have something intellectual to say to our world about God, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of salvation, the nature of personal fulfillment, the nature of human existence, what our future is. We have something to say, and if it isn't said, the world of which we are a part will perish in its darkness and in its lostness. And its salvation is tied up with that we know. And so he says, Timothy, you ought to be careful about your doctrine. Timothy, you ought to be careful about Scripture because it's in the Scripture that you will find the way. It's given to us so that we can share with the world the way of salvation. Now, uh, you know, it was because of this that Paul was willing to suffer all sorts of things. I wish I had time to go through it more carefully, but you look at the fourth chapter. You know what he says? Everybody's forsaken me. He's named in the first chapter a couple who dropped by the wayside. He's named in the second or third chapter, I've forgotten which one it is now, another couple that dropped by the wayside. In the fourth chapter, he says, Demas has forsaken me. And he says, when they brought me into Caesar's court, everybody forsook me. But boy, what a great hour it was. Why? you think he enjoyed being there? Only one reason he enjoyed being there. You know what he said? He said, I had a chance to tell them the truth. I'm interested in a man that will lay his life on the line for the privilege of speaking. And he was willing to lay his life on the line for the privilege of speaking eternal truth. And I hope that some way or other while you're at Asbury, God will put something in your heart to where you will be ready to make any sacrifice that is necessary to tell people the truth. I've read through on occasion much of John Wesley's journal. One of the things that you will find him saying again and again and again was, as he tells about, I went to this place and to that place and to that place, and he'll make one comment. And I gave to them Christ. And he was ready to be uh, scoffed at. He was ready to be stoned. He was ready to be tarred and feathered. He was ready to be excommunicated. He was ready for most anything else. If he could just have the privilege of presenting Christ. Now we have truth that needs to be spoken. 
Now, if we do, we must be ready to pay the price in order to do that. I've been I've been impressed reading through this time the, this book. How often he speaks about suffering. I dare you to read through Second Timothy and notice how often he speaks about suffering. It may be because the old man's in prison. It may be because he's in shackles. It may be because he can't get a decent night's sleep because they bother him. It may be that it's because his bones ache and he's old and any man who had suffered what he had suffered would have all sorts of things wrong with his body. And in that a damp place and an unpleasant place, we don't know what his circumstances were exactly, but it may well be that that may have been in his mind. But he looks at a young man and says, and you must be willing to, too. Now, what's he saying? He's not asking us to get to the place where we relish the chance to go through pain, where we get morbid and and a martyr complex and say, feed me a little more suffering so I can glory in it and feel myself a little more righteous. He says, you don't have to ask that. For those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul says, and he says it as if it is an absolute, and an unequivocal, eternal truth. And you know, I believe there is some sense in which that's true. If you are going to be a witness for Christ, you're going to have to stick your neck out enough that it may cost you something. And if you never stick your neck out enough that it costs you something, there's a serious question as to whether you deserve the name Christian or the term disciple of our Lord. Now, you know, it probably isn't going to come to us the way it came to Paul. It may not be a case of life or death. It may be something far more subtle and maybe something in some ways much more difficult. We've had in our community now for a few weeks a new family that keeps sneaking into chapel and sitting with us all the time as if it were required for them too. Yesterday I had the privilege of sitting down and having a long conversation with him. In the military, in the diplomatic service, responsible for social contacts in the community where he had been sent by our government. He said, you know, we had to face the question as to whether we would serve alcoholic beverages in our homes to the diplomatic and to the military personnel that we were supposed to wine and dine. So he said, my wife and I talked it out, prayed it out, and we said, no, we will not serve alcoholic beverages. I noticed that President Carter has had difficulties at this point. And I noticed that most people in those positions do. So his commanding officer called him in, his superior called him in and said, what about this? And he said, yes, that's our position. And his superior looked at him and said, can you do your job without serving alcoholic beverages? And he said, yes, I think I can. It was obvious that his commanding officer didn't think he could. Now, you know, you say, that may not take a great deal of courage. All I want to ask is, would you have that much courage? 
may not take the same dimension of courage that it does to stand in a bonfire, but most of the people who died in bonfires were carried to the bonfire. But he said, you know, when I left that post, he said, they said to me, we can't replace you, we can only put somebody in your position. And he probably bothered for me to tell you that, but what, what he meant was, you know, God vindicates his own. But you see, there's no way that God can demonstrate his power unless you get out of the head of the pack away. And so Paul says to Timothy, I hope you will be willing to do that. Count it all lost. Anything if it keeps you from being identified with Christ. And you know, I believe there's where you will win or lose. And the only way that you can do it is to have within you a spirit not of timidity, not of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And it's Those three words fit together. I'm scared to death of people that have power that don't have love. And let me tell you, people that have love who don't have power are worthless. And God needs to add to both of these wisdom. So that you read the book and he says, don't get hung up on words and don't get hung up on things that most people quarrel about. Don't let your witness be spent in negligible, marginal things. Stay at the center. Amazing amount of wisdom here. But he says, when you are at the center, you stand. And you know, now's the time for you to learn. And Asbury is not the easiest place in the world for you to do it. You know why? Because everybody's Christian here. But you know... Even at Asbury, they say now, don't be too square. But I want to say, if you can't learn to stick your neck out and establish your personal integrity in identification with Christ now, you can chalk off the rest of your life, just like Aletus, Hymenaeus, and Demas, and the rest of these fellows in First Timothy, that were friends of Paul who forsook the gospel. You know, we all want to witness at that strategic hour, but you know, you'll never do it at the strategic hour unless you do it at the unstrategic and the unimportant one. I had a young lady in one of my churches once who was a brilliant pianist. She graduated from the University of Rochester with a double major in piano and pre-med. And I see that enough of you are knowledgeable enough of the problems in that kind of path to appreciate it. She had an opportunity to go to Eastman after that. as a pianist, 
But as she prayed, she felt led to go into medicine. She is in Nepal today. But I remember one day she was performing with the Albany New York Symphony Orchestra. She performed, played a concerto, a couple of pieces, brilliantly. And then they insisted on an encore. She was about this tall, brunette, sort of olive skin, black eyes, black hair. She had on a pink formal. Beautiful. Anybody would be impressed. And after she played, magnificent. When she stood up to play her encore, she, of course, had to introduce it. And so she had a chance to speak. And so she said, I'd like to play for an encore, a composition written by one of my teachers. It is a study in black. As you listen, you will sense the depression and the despair. She said, it's very moving. She said, I've asked my teacher to write a second composition, which would be a study in light. because I wish I had in my repertoire a piece that had those opposite emotions so beautifully expressed. Because she said, you see, there was a day in my life when my life was just like the piece I'm going to play. Despair. Meaning. But one day something great happened in my life. And I moved from darkness to light, and from despair to hope, and it all happened when Jesus Christ came into my heart. And then she sat down and started to play. And I watched the old Scottish uh, conductor, symphony orchestra conductor. He was standing on one side, and all the time he was, she was speaking, he was shifting his feet as nervously as a cat on a warm roof. And the reason he was nervous so early was the minute she started to speak, he was scared that was what was going to happen. Because he knew her. But you know, I remembered a Sunday school class, first time I ever met her, before I was associated with the church. I was teaching a Sunday school class. And in that Sunday school class, I was speaking about Moses and his willingness to suffer reproach for the cause of Christ. And she took hot issue with me, with those black eyes. She took hot issue and said, how can you be a witness for Christ if you're different? And then one day Christ came into her heart. And do you know where she got her proving ground? In the TV station, singing in a youth program on Saturday night. Secular, it wasn't religious, but between the programs, she carried in her pocket navigator cards. And she'd spend the time between her appearances before camera memorizing scripture. She didn't have any problem witnessing. They asked her, What are you doing, Cindy? 
these say very graciously and pixie-like, memorizing God's Word. You know a better way to spend your spare time? And if you can bear the witness in the place like that, when the great moment comes, you'll be ready too. But what you'll need is a spirit not of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, and of love, and of wisdom. You'll need Christ's spirit. May he fill you. Don't quench what he wants to do in your heart. Let it be fanned to full flame.